Well, it wasn't hard to come up with a, with a theme or a topic for this morning. Uh, obviously, we're going to talk about gratitude, which is the theme of Thanksgiving. Also, my favorite holiday because it allows us to have time of fellowship with family, food. I like food a little bit. I know it's hard to tell, but and then uh, and more importantly, that we can focus on the provider of all those things. Amen. That it's just a time of of gratitude and celebration. Now, if, as Christians, we know that we, sh- we should be grateful for every single moment, right? We have new life in Christ. We have eternal life through Christ. But it seems it's so easy for us to lose our gratitude. It seems like it's so easy for us to get distracted or begin to consider not what we have and what God has done, but what we want, what we think we need. As as I began to look at my own life in particular and what I wanted to talk about, I couldn't help but reflect on God's amazing grace and mercy. And so I have a visual aid this morning. For those of you who aren't on Facebook, I I posted this as a a testimony, as, as a real reminder of life before Christ. And so I wanna put a picture up It's a picture of Pastor Jamie and I 30 years ago. And, and it, it's funny, but it's not funny. I debated whether to put it up because, you know, sometimes we sanitize things. You know, the Bible talks about Paul standing by while Stephen was stoned. So life is messy. And I know that you've heard our testimony, but that, that's sort of an illustration of what, what death looks like. I'd like to say it was just, you know, maybe a couple years where, you know, bad choices were made. But for a decade and a half, Jamie and I made choices that nearly destroyed us and caused lots of pain and lots of damage. We were as lost as lost could be, but for Jesus. And so I want to I call that the BC, the before Christ picture. And now this next one, it's not after Christ. This is the WC. This is the with, with Christ picture. Go ahead and put that up. That was taken a couple days ago. And so as I reflect on, on my life and what I'm grateful for, it's his power and his presence that changes us. Our testimony is like we just sang, it's moving from death to life. That first picture was a couple guys that were lost, that thought joy and fulfillment would be found in you know, the parties and the, that lifestyle. And we ended up alone, desperate, broken, searching. I can't help but think of Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is death. And so as I reflect on what I'm grateful for, before I think of my wife and children and my friends and family here in this church, I think of him. Jesus, the one who saved me, the one who rescued me the one who loved me when I was entirely unlovable and saw fit to use me and his plans for the lives of others. And I am overwhelmed, overwhelmed with gratitude for his presence. Grateful for his presence is the title of the message this morning. Psalm 16 verse 11 says, you will show me the path of life in your 
presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Lord, what you do, would you do right now what I can't do? Would you come in power through your word and your spirit? Would you soften hearts? Would you change lives? Would you have your way in and through each of us, God? So that we can be cultivating hearts of gratitude for your presence, first and foremost. The presence that changes us from within. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So we tend to lose gratitude because we tend to focus on self-sufficiency on what we can do, on what we can accomplish. But the the answer to self-sufficiency is sufficiency in Christ. The answer to our our longing, our our wandering hearts is sufficiency in Christ. Summed up in Philippians 4.13, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. 2 Corinthians 12.9, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. See, where we have weakness, dependence on God produces strength, but it also increases faith. I said a couple weeks ago, D.L. Moody said, we can stand affliction better than prosperity, for in prosperity we forget God. See, sometimes when things are going good, we forget about God. We stop being where we're supposed to be and doing what we're supposed to do. And we know it's about God and we say we're grateful, but we have wandering hearts. We have wandering eyes. And we begin to think that perhaps God is holding back. Perhaps somewhere there is more and our, fo- our focus and our attention falls off of him. If Christ isn't everything to you, you're still searching. And we know we love God, we say we love God, but I think we forget about the cross because we can't be ungrateful if you remember the cross. You can't help but be grateful if you remember the cross. I've said again and again and again, if you want to know how much God loves you, just look at the cross. All of our prayers were answered on the cross. If we forget the cross, we lose our focus and our gratitude, and we wander. We begin to focus on not what we have, but what we think we need, and we desire something other than the Lord, and we fall prey to the age-old trick of the enemy. See, the thing is, we have the playbook. The enemy's never changed his strategy. We don't have to guess what he's going to do. He does the same thing. He lies to us. He gets us to doubt our identity, and he gets us to question the goodness of God. That's what the enemy does. That's the only thing he can do. And, and I've said before that sin is a cheap substitute for something better that God has for us. And if we realize that, if we realize that he wants what's best for us, and if we find everything that we long for in Christ, then how can we be tempted? I was, I was last night, I was invited to the policeman's ball as the chaplain, and I, and I prayed, and I know a lot of those guys. I've been around those guys for a long time, and you know, I had a good time to connect and, and give my testimony, and then the bar was open. Now, see, the enemy knows that now he's got to use a different strategy because Jack Daniels doesn't tempt me anymore. Jack Daniels has nothing on Jesus Christ, amen? amen. And so I was there, and you know, my buddies are doing the shots, and I'm just like, you know, the enemy doesn't even really, it's not even like something he tries anymore. It's got to be something else now because I'm set free. 
I don't want that life no more. And I was able to testify, and these guys that have known me for, you know, 30 years, time after time came up to you, man, I'm so proud of you. And I, I want to be like, I know they're trying to be nice, but I'm like, proud of me? You should be proud of Jesus. Because, man, I did nothing. I did nothing but throw myself on the mercy and grace of God. See, Adam and Eve had the presence of God. They had a relationship with him. And where they went wrong was they thought maybe they needed more. Maybe they were missing something. Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? Strategy of the enemy, lie. That was a lie. The enemy knows it's a lie. God is not withholding good things. He's setting healthy limits. And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said you shall not eat or touch from it or you will die. So she starts out well, doesn't she? She's correcting the lie. She's saying that's actually, that's not what God said. So what does the enemy do? He pivots. He, he, he changes his strategy slightly. The serpent said to the woman, you shall surely not die. In other words, wait a minute. What did God tell you? No, that's not, that's not true. No, no, no. God, God's not being truthful with you. You see, God's holding back something good, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. See, God's withholding something from you. He, he doesn't want what's best for you. And now she could have corrected the lie again, and she could have said, I know God, that's not how he is, but now she's, you know, well, well, maybe. And so then verse six says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and it was desirable to make one wise, in other words, she gave it a second look and she thought, well, you know, Maybe it's not so bad. You know, I mean, it looks good. I mean, maybe, maybe there's some truth to what the enemy's saying. And again, that's what we do. Well, maybe just this once. Well, you know, it's not, it's not bad if, you know, if, you know, if I go to that place. I know I'm not supposed to, yeah, you know. And we begin to believe the lies of the enemy. She saw that the tree was good. Sin always looks good. Right? Oh, we wouldn't sin. But if we know the source of goodness, then sin has no power over us. But it says, she looked and she saw it was good for food. It was the delight to the eyes. It was desirable to make one wise. And so she took from it and she ate it. And she also gave it to her husband who was with her and he ate. Because we all know that when you make a bad choice, there's nothing better than getting other people in the bad choice with you. Because then you feel a little less bad, right? Here, try this. See, if we're grateful to God, if we know who he is, if we enjoy his presence, we're not so self-absorbed. When we lose focus, we lose gratitude. We feel entitled. We begin to think that perhaps God is holding out. And the shiny, forbidden apple begins to look better and better, and we reach out for it. See, for a long time, the presence of God was with it was with Adam and Eve. And then sin comes, and for a long time now, the presence of God is away from the people. 
In the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies where only the high priest can enter and only with limitations, the presence of God was removed. That's the biggest effect of sin. That's the biggest damaging. All the stuff, the identity crisis, the conflict, all those things were a result of the removal of the intimacy with God. And because of the blood of Jesus, we can once again come directly into his presence, church. I hear people say all the time, I long for heaven where I can spend eternity with Jesus. And I'm like, well, that's good, but how much time are you spending with him right now? We can speak to the Father. The Bible tells us that right now God's presence does not dwell in a temple, but in our hearts. Romans 8, 9, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you, makes its home inside of you. 1 Corinthians 6, 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? 1 John 4, 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. I want to read from Acts 17. So we just looked at Genesis. We looked at the Old Testament. We looked at the source of the problem. We looked at how the enemy works. Now I want to look at Paul. This is Paul in Athens on Mars Hill. This is, I don't want to make fun of gym guys, but you know gym guys, all they do is talk about the gym and other guys in the gym and how much do you bend. The Athens was like the intellectual gym of the day where people came and they, you know, I think this, well, I think this, well, that's very eloquent. And that's what it was. Sort of a big ego trip for the academics of the day. And so Paul goes there and he sees, you know, they have this vague spirituality, you know, this sense of like they have a monument to an unknown God. You know, people will say, I'm going to send positive vibes your way, man. I'm like, thanks, and two bucks will get me, well, what, four bucks now will get me a cup of coffee. I mean, I know people are well-intentioned, but it doesn't mean anything. But Paul understands that they're lost, that they don't know. So Paul right here is going to tell them what they need to know. Acts 17, I'm going to begin in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their lands. And this is sort of the linchpin, the central verse. God intended that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. And I love this verse. For in him we live and we move and we have our being. In his presence we find life. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, being offspring of God, we should not think that the divine being is like silver or gold or stone, an image formed by man's skill and imagination. Paul's going, it's not about religion. And it's not about the best treasure you can think of pales in comparison to the one who created all things. Although God overlooked the ignorance of earlier times, he now commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. This is deeply theological and very practical. After Paul explains to them who God is, he's saying now what you need to do is repent. 
which means to begin to walk different, means to turn away. And he's saying, because judgment's gonna come and the one who's gonna judge is gonna judge with justice, is gonna judge perfectly. And then Paul says, and he's qualified to do that because he proved he was who he claimed to be by being raised from the dead. Paul's making a theological case. He's saying, look, you gotta change, you gotta stop, you gotta repent, you gotta believe. See, too often in life we allow distractions to take our focus away from the presence of God. Things have to get so out of focus, you know. It'd be nice, you see those young punks and it's like, you know, you'd think eventually they'd, you know, you know things start to go bad and maybe they'd, they'd turn around and, you know. But I, the wheels fell off the bus, the bus backed up, ran us over, it rolled forward. It was a mess. Everything was tattered. Our families didn't want to talk to us. It was was not just like a couple mistakes, like the first time you get arrested or the first time you end up in rehab, but no. It was, all right, well, I can still do this. Well, I can still do this. Well, I can still do this until I can't do this. Now, you don't have to let the wheels fall off the bus. You don't have to get to the point that we got to where everything's a disaster, but you do have to repent. You do have to get to the end of you and find sufficiency in him. Everyone does. You do have to understand the call to live different as a result of a changed heart based on the power of Jesus Christ. Don't let things get so bad before you turn it around because God's patient He'll pursue you, and he'll bring you back, and we know, to the same places, the same times, the same decisions points, and it's almost like he's going, all right, you got one more shot. You ready for me yet? I remember in my life so many times, and you know what I did? I, I, think, I think now I've learned from my mistakes. Maybe if I just shift this a little bit. Man, as bright as you think you are, as good of a life as you think you're going to craft, it doesn't compare to the author and perfecter of your faith. I can't help, I can't help but be overwhelmed by gratitude because I shouldn't be standing here. I shouldn't be standing on earth, let alone standing here. But God, but God. And I know that the minute we wanna focus our hearts and minds on him and we wanna pray and we wanna read our word, the distractions come and the chatter and the noise and the conflict, it never fails. But we gotta be disciplined, we gotta learn to prioritize. I remember reading a a book, a pastor said he was too busy not to pray. I think it was Luther who said, I I have so much to do today that I must spend the first three hours of my life on my face in prayer. Prayer to us is an afterthought. We say it as like, you know, we got nothing else, like I'll pray like it's the last resort. Instead of I'm gonna pray like it's the first resort. There's power in prayer. We have things that are necessary to be done in our lives. We have things that aren't necessarily sinful, but they're not priorities. They shouldn't be priorities. We're prioritizing things. They should be secondary things. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6, 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Like the phrase, the things we own end up owning us. Paul's going, look, there's some things that are morally neutral. 
But if they compete for your affection of Jesus, then they're sinful. The enemy doesn't care if you don't show up to church or, or group or the things that nourish you, if you don't read your Bible because you're drunk in a barroom or because you're watching the game. All the enemy cares about is that he's removed you from the source of life. He's got you to doubt the goodness of God, and we fall for it. How can, as, a Christ, how can, as Christians, we lose our gratitude? How? Eugene Peterson wrote this. We live in a culture that knows little or nothing of a life that listens and waits, a life that attends and adores. We're always drifting off into the impersonal because it's easier and less demanding, but it is demeaning and estranging. It's not relational. It's not going to fulfill the God-shaped hole in your heart is not going to be filled with drugs or with sex or with money or with status or with anything else the world has. And the sooner we come to realize that, the less power the enemy has. And we cultivate grateful hearts. Always and everywhere in Scripture, we are brought back to the central fact. God came as a person he makes persons. He remakes persons. A person like me and a person like you. You think religion is a matter of knowing and doing things, but it's not. It's a matter of letting God do something in you, do something for you, do something through you. It's letting him love you, letting him save you, letting him bless you, bless you. and then it's about letting him command you our part is to look and believe, to pray and obey. To look and believe, to pray and obey. No matter what's going on, we need to look up. God's word is full of promises that he's going to meet our needs. There's no fine print. There's no asterisk. Philippians 4.19, God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Isaiah 41.10, so do not fear, I am with you. Do not be dismayed, I am your God. I will strengthen you and I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Psalm 138.7, though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the anger of my foes. With, my, with your right hand, you save me. And of course, a favorite, Philippians 4.7, in the peace of God which transcends understanding will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Paul's going, it defies logic. See, when, when the world looks at you and, and your job's going well and your relationships are going well and the, you're driving a new car and everything's good and you say God is good, everybody understands that. When you're battling sickness, when you're in the midst of grief and loss, when everything's falling apart and you can still worship him, that's a testimony. That's saying to the world, that doesn't make sense. That surpasses, that transcends. That's above the grasp of my understanding because of the presence of God, because of a relationship with Jesus. I was talking to a friend the other day on the phone and getting caught up on the ministry stuff and he's like, man, it's just so good to hear what's happening. He's like, what, what's the you know, what's the secret, man? I was like, I don't know. I don't think this is a secret. I, 
I'm, I'm in love with Jesus. Every moment of every day, I desperately cling to the cross of Christ and I love people. I've been set free and I want people to be set free because I see the hopelessness. I walk with people and the brokenness. I have a friend who sent me a card and I'll never forget this expression. And she said, you just keep loving people back to life. And there's no greater joy. And there's no greater redemption of our past when those knuckleheads, when I was at the police ball last night and people were like, man, it's so good to see you. And I'm like, what you're seeing is what God's done in my life. Because I'd be right here with you if I was alive. See, the enemy only cares if our focus is taken off Jesus. The enemy only cares if he can get us to believe that maybe there's something more. Maybe there's something better. Maybe the apple, the shiny apple is not so bad. Until we're so far in bondage. And the voice is, is, is so quiet. It's there, but it's so quiet. See, no matter what your past looks like, no matter what you did this morning, you are not beyond the grace and mercy of God. Your sin is not more powerful than the cross. But you have to trust them. At the end of the service, we're going to have people up in the front and the side to pray with you. And whether you've never trusted in Christ or whether you're backslidden, whether you're struggling, whether you're in the midst, have, have that time. Give your life to him. See, worship is the antidote to worry. Worship is the antidote to worry. If you're in the midst of a struggle, you can still say, God is so good. He is worthy of all my affection, my adoration. He is worthy of all the glory and honor and praise in the midst of the valley. When you can focus your heart and minds on him and his presence, he meets us there. And on the other side of things, often if things are going well for us, we tend to be self-focused. I get that. Things are going good, and we, we, you know, we tend to kind of hit autopilot, and God is good, you know, and listen to Christian music, everything's great, yay. But is it real? Is that same presence of God that is the source of your joy when things are going good, is that still the source of your joy when they are falling apart? It makes all the difference. So here's the challenge. If things are going well for you right now, if your faith is strong and you're in a season of blessing, then you and I both ought to be walking and praying with broken people because when I was lost, I needed that. I needed people to come alongside me and tell me my choices were bad and my life was a mess. I knew that. I need people to say, hey, I'm going to help you pick up your mat because we need to get you to Jesus. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going I'm to pick you up because we need to get you to Jesus. Do we do that with other people? Micah 7, 7 through 8. But as for me, I will wait expectantly for the Lord. I will wait with expectation, with trust, with faith, knowing. I will wait for the God of my salvation, and my God will hear me. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. Though I fall, I will rise. Though I dwell in darkness, the Lord is the light for me. Though I fall, I will rise. That's what makes the difference, church. In his presence, there's power and there's strength. 
Paul tells us in Galatians 6, 9 through 10, do not get tired of doing what is good. Why? Because it's tiring. Life is not for the faint of heart. It's tough. But Paul says, do not grow tired of of doing what is good at just the right time. And I love that. Because we have a God that shows up at just the right time. We will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. Therefore, whenever we have opportunity, we should do good to everyone. Wherever you are, don't give up. Don't give up. God will meet you, and he will sustain you, and he will strengthen you, and then he will use you. Don't give up. The only reason we can rise, the only reason we can have hope and joy and peace is because of his grace and mercy and his presence. The community groups are going to be starting in February, and we're going to be looking at the book of James. And so we talked about Genesis, and we talked about the problem, and we talked about Paul and Acts addressing people where they were and telling what they need to do and repent. And now I want to look at James, and James is a very practical book. Scholars think it was probably the first book written in the New Testament, probably about 48 AD, written by the half-brother of Jesus, became head of the Jerusalem church. They think, oftentimes people think that James is at odds with Paul, that Paul talked about uh, salvation by faith and that James seems to suggest salvation by work, which is not the case. In fact, James and Paul together give us a more complete understanding of the law. Paul shows us that Jesus fulfilled the demands of the law and our salvation is based on what he completed, said and done. And James shows us that obedience to God's moral lives is a sign of living faith, a life lived in step with Christ. James is showing us that an authentic faith is demonstrated by works. It's not, an authentic, it's not works that lead to salvation. Those works are the result of salvation by how we live, by who we live for. And so James, like many of the New Testament writers, identifies himself as a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't become a believer until after the resurrection. And he addresses his letter to the 12 tribes scattered abroad. It means likely it was written from Jerusalem and he's, he's, he's writing to Jewish Christians and the dispersion there. They're not in their homeland. They're not comfortable. They're being persecuted. Written to Christians who are not accepted by society, who are struggling, who are discriminated against. Things were tough. They weren't living in a Christian nation And here's a little side note. There's no such thing as a Christian nation. Throughout history, when nations were nominally Christian, they were spiritually dead. There's such thing as Christian people, as Christian principles in the founding. But the reality is that difficulty causes spiritual maturity. Bad things happening gives us a chance to really be the church. Not nominally, but spiritually, internally. See, it's never going to be popular to be a Christian. Society's never going to accept you to be a Christian. So he wants to encourage these believers to live bold in their Christian faith despite the obstacles. Despite the fact that they're now living in a place where they're being persecuted. It's a book about practical Christian living. 
And it was written to those who lived in a culture and a time where it was not popular to be a Christian. And I submit to you that it never has been and that it never will be. And so James is writing to them to continue to grow in this faith even when times get tough. That's the context before James makes this absurd statement in verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. He doesn't just say, you know, stick it out. You know, when, when you have difficulty, just make sure you do it. He says, consider it joy. Like, wait, wait, what? James, James, come on, what are you talking about? Joy? Consider it joy? Well, if the purpose of our life is to be more like Christ, then everything that gives us the opportunity to be more like Christ ought to, in that sense, bring us joy. And James understands the reality that we are never closer to Christ, it seems, than when we're suffering or never more aware of our need of him than when we're suffering. So James says, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials, because we know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. It's a Greek word, hupomone. It's in classical Greek, it was the ability of a plant to survive in conditions where plants don't survive, in the desert, on rocks. It means there was life when there should never have been life. That somehow, despite the conditions, this, this plant thrived. And that's the word James is using. That despite your conditions and your circumstance, you can thrive because of the power of Christ in you. In the first century, it was, used, it was characteristic of a person who wasn't swerved, who, did, who wasn't sidetracked from what they ought to do. They were committed, they were focused, perseverance, endurance, steadfastness. They have a sense of activity, of actively straining against a condition. And then he says, let perseverance finish its work, that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If I would have started the sermon this morning and said, we're going to talk about how we can all be mature and complete, not lacking anything, everyone would have been like, yes, that's going to be good. I want And then I would have said, oh, we're going to now, the, the source of that is trials little less exciting. But if we're not alone, if God can use the worst moments and situations of our lives to bring us to the awareness of the need of him. See, I've said before, sometimes God will change our circumstance, but he will always change our condition. That's what he wants to do. He wants to use our circumstances to bring us to focus on our condition, our need of him. And so James says, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. See, James knows the Christian life is about being made into the likeness of Christ. It's not just about what you know. It's about who you know. It's not just mental ascent. We have to know the right things. Theology and doctrine matters because we have to understand rightfully who God is. But if the fruit of that, if that understanding doesn't lead to a regenerate heart and a changed life, it's faulty somewhere. The Pharisees didn't necessarily have wrong theology. They just have hardened hearts. 
Blessed is the one, verse 12, who perseveres under trial because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. We gotta be eternity focused. When things are a mess, I could have ran away. I've talked about that before. Bad things happen, people run into God's arms or they run away from him. And when you run away from him, you're not just running away from him, you're running into something else. And I promise you, as sure as I'm standing here, it's not gonna help you. It's not gonna fulfill you, it's not gonna rescue you, it's not gonna set you free. It's gonna be worse and worse and worse. I could have run away. And James knows that the tendency is to wanna run away into something else. And so he cautions us in verse 13, when tempted, no one should say God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin full grown gives birth to death. Means we're responsible, and we can't blame ourselves for our lack of trust in him. My dear brothers, verse 19, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of moral filth and the evil that is prevalent. And he says, humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. And don't fall for the temptation. Don't fall for the lies of the enemy, but the God who's right there with you, who's calling out that you put your trust and faith in him, has the power and the desire to save you, to redeem you, and to use you. Do not merely listen to the word, verse 22, and deceive yourself. Do what it says. It's not just about what you know and what you can repeat and what you can shout at other people. It's about what's in you, what you're living out. See, we're real good at learning the Christian language. We're real good about trying to remove some of those big outward sins. But who are we? When we're all alone, what is that thing we reach for when times get tough? I pray with my heart of hearts that it's Christ. You know, I wish my words can convey to you. The reason I'm here, the reason I'm standing here is because I have a love for Jesus and I love you. And there's nothing that brings me greater joy than to see people set free, than to see that spark in their eye when they get it. And they realize he's so good. That's why David says, taste and see for yourself. You can be encouraged by a testimony. You can be motivated by a testimony, but you can have a testimony. Taste and see for yourself that the Lord is good. Then you can go. Then you can move forward from death to life, and talk to others about the Jesus you love. But whoever looks intently, verse 25, into the, and I love this phrase, because it's so contra what we understand, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom, I think laws restrict, but God's laws give freedom. That's what they didn't understand in the garden. And James is saying that perfect law that gives freedom, if you continue in it and you don't forget what you've heard, you will be blessed in what you do. 
See, we, cons- we should consider sufferings and trials joy because as believers, if we say we want to be more like Jesus, we never have more of an opportunity to press in than in the midst of difficulty. We don't have to be like, you know, like the monks who you know, beat themselves and who try to in- impose artificial difficulty. It's going to come. Suffering's going to come. You don't have to create fake suffering or you know, more suffering. It's going to come. But they understood that in suffering, it seems to purify faith. It seems to get us to go deeper. And so that's why James is going, look, when bad things happen, consider it joy. Consider it an opportunity to grow in faith, to mature. Why? Because in those moments, you will know, not intellectually, but in your heart, the presence of God himself. Be sincere, not just on the outside, but on the inside. James closes by saying that we're to care for others, not be polluted by the world. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. Look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep yourself from being polluted by the world. He's saying the outflow of an authentic conversion is that you care for those who can't care for themselves and you keep yourself from being polluted by the world. You keep your focus on Jesus. See, I promise you, as sure as I'm standing here, if you take this message to heart, you will never be the same. I am the opposite of special. (laughs) I shouldn't be here, guys. But God saw fit to rescue me. I'm a trophy of his mercy and grace. He uses the foolish things of the world. He, 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 it's not just for some. Embrace what you're going through. Repent of your sins. Turn your heart to him and watch what he does. I've, 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 I've met hundreds of people who are filled with regret that they didn't trust Jesus, that they didn't give their life to Jesus, that they kept doing their own thing over and over again. I've yet to meet anyone who said, yeah, I really regret that day I gave my life fully to Christ. And let us walk with those who are struggling. I want to end this morning by sharing a number with you. It's an important number, or what it represents is important. The number is 27,375. Anyone want to guess what that is? It's the number of days the average person gets on earth. It's the average life expectancy in the U.S. right now. You get about 4,000 weekends. Every day, whether you choose to or not, you withdraw one day from that time bank that you will never get back. It is gone forever. James 4.14 says, you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are a vapor that appears for a while and then vanishes away. This life is nothing when compared with eternity. And I don't know about you, but I want to finish well. I don't want to start off strong and then have some shiny apple come along that takes my focus off of him. I don't want to stop believing the, eyes, the lies of the enemy that somehow, you know, that it's not, you know, that God has, has withheld something from me or that there's more somewhere. I don't want to turn my back on the God who rescued me more times than I can count. 
It's his presence that rescues us, that empowers us, that sets us free. And so through Christ, I want to love as many people as I can back to life. And I want you to as well. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. I know that life is tough. I know that there are people here in this room that are struggling, that can barely hang on. I'm going to have the prayer prayer, uh, team come up as well. And please, as, as we close in worship and prayer, would you take this time? Who cares what your neighbors think? What you, just take this time. The presence of God is here for you. Lay it all down. Cast your cares, your burdens on him. Confess, repent, and walk with Jesus. Paul writes in Romans 8, 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who's against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? If you're having a hard time, let somebody know. And we'll pray with you and we'll walk with you. And if you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus, today's the day. And if you've given your life to him, but you're distracted, you're off track, you're believing the lies of the enemy, today's the day. Don't leave here the same way you came in. Father, would you soften hearts? Would you change lives and eternities? Would you have your way? Would you come in power? Would you fill this place with your spirit? Would you overwhelm us with your presence? Because we know that's the only thing that makes all the difference. In the mighty and precious name of Jesus, we pray. Please stand as we close.